0: And we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call Shift Your Mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Jack Green is a double Olympian, former global well-being lead, and performance coach. He has this unique perspective on what it takes to achieve high performance, and he also knows about the dark side of sport, elite sport, and high performance, and how some of the mindsets that he cultivated for himself professionally to get to some of the highest levels in his sport were also some of the mindsets that really led to him living a unhealthy life and getting into some mental health challenges that really did derail not only his career but but his life in general. His philosophy has become simple. If you are thriving personally, you will no doubt thrive professionally and he's on a mission to help as many people as possible to be the best version of themselves. He retired from elite sport at the age of 28 after winning world and European medals. And we talk about medals in today's conversation and also why finishing fourth were some of the proudest races and competitions that Jack had. He has a passion for high performance and he is he has continued to step into that world as a coach, as a speaker, as a mentor. And he really does believe in the power of the mind to drive performance and to drive wellness. You're going to love my conversation with Jack. He's thoughtful with his words. He's wise beyond his years. And it's a conversation that we all need to hear. So here is Jack Green. Jack, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Before we hit record, we were both talking about parenting. You're a new parent. uh, So, congratulations on that. And we were talking about how hard it is. And uh, I think about you as an athlete and a lot of your journey and a lot of your story, and there's a lot of hard stuff. And so, we'll certainly get into some of the challenges that you faced in your life, uh, also as a runner. But where I thought we'd start is on this idea of speed. And I've worked with people in track, uh, cross country, and I remember reading David Epstein's book The Sports Gene which talked about how speed there's a huge natural component to it that it's very hard to go from being a slow person to a fast person. And as I hear your story and your journey it's like, you know, I think a coach finds you and says, hey, "Why don't you run?" and you're good almost immediately and then they say, "Hey, why don't you do hurdles?" and I think you win your your first race in hurdles and at 20 you're deemed the most talented athlete uh on Great Britain's roster. And so there is this idea for you around natural talent and speed and a gift that maybe you were given. And so I'm curious for you how you think about that gift and how you think about nature and then also the idea of nurturing nature and and how that has impacted the way you see gifts or talent and how you see the world from that lens.
1: That's a big start. So I like that. We're going in real heavy. Um, obviously really pleased to be here. And and these are the kind of subjects I love talking about. And as you said, from a, a young age, I could run. I was faster than everyone else from day one. And I what I did have to find my event. I was good at, at most sports, all sports. I started as an 800 meter runner and high jump. But as you said, a coach said to me, Jack, you're tall. I'm six foot four uh, now. So I've always been tall as a kid as well. Said, You're tall give the hurdles go, see what happens. And as you said, my first race, I I broke the British record for my age and went, brilliant, this is the one I'm going to do. And started my journey there. And I don't like to talk about luck because I think luck doesn't have any ownership over it. And I also don't think it's repeatable. Um, And I'm very big on let's get repeatable success. So I talk about fortune rather than luck. So I'll probably say fortunate a lot in this. So I was really fortunate to have natural ability, height so on and so forth, to be able to do the chosen career that, that I went into. In the end, track and field is, is even more brutal as a sport, uh, like a lot of Olympic sports, that if I wasn't the height that I was, I didn't have the certain natural abilities, I wouldn't have gone professional. Because yes, there is skill. There's a lot of skill in biomechanics and how you move properly and how you execute your race. But physical is the number one game, which is also why I like it. It's very pure. But for me... I know so many talented sports people at the age of 15 just before I or 14 rather just before I started becoming that kind of next big thing I remember running the 400 meters and and being eighth in the UK which is a fantastic thing as a 14 year old eighth in the UK for my age but there were seven people who were faster than me those seven people none of them went professional I ran hurdles faster than all of them ever ran 400 meters without hurdles yeah, they were hugely talented, gifted, physically blessed people. Yeah, they might have matured early or whatever, but they had real physical ability. But I could outwork anyone. And I came from a, an environment growing up of single-parent family. We had nothing. We struggled. Very working class that I knew what I had to put in. And also athletics then became my kind of escape and the thing that was going to give me opportunities in life and the thing that I then became obsessed with so that nurture piece is hugely important in in where you go and I don't think that nurture piece I think we look at it as when you're a child it's just how how you nurture yeah that's that's the majority of it but I still have elements of learning and experience that I'm having every single day so that's still influencing the natural abilities that I have.
0: Hey, Jack, if I asked you when you're 20 years old, you're deemed like this really talented guy, tons of potential. I'm sure the word potential, you're 6'4", you got the speed. I'm sure that word potential came up. If I asked you, hey, why do you race? How would you have answered it when you were 20?
1: To win. To be the best. That's the only reason why. I was fueled by insecurity. I was fueled by fear of failure. Um... Yeah, nothing particularly internal. It was all around achieving something so that others were impressed by me, achieving something so I could be seen as this and that. And I still have elements. I can feel like the the jealousy monster come out every now and then when I see someone else achieve something. I can I can do that, or I'm better than them. But I'm not actually doing it because I want to do it. I'm doing it just because I think that's what is important in society or 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 in life. And obviously, there was a lot of learning and development. Through my experiences at a young age and, and going professional so so young that have shaped who I am now, really.
0: And if you were, and I know you love to coach, and and, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because we're gonna talk about well-being, we're gonna talk about performance, we're gonna talk about where there's maybe intersections, where maybe there's differentiated or or separated concepts and constructs. But if you were coaching a 20-year-old, let's just say you were coaching 20-year-old Jack, how would you approach Jack? with the answer to that question of why do you why do you race? How would you coach that person and help them develop?
1: That's a great question because I came from very old school environments and, and British as well of stiff upper lip and get on with it and very masculine environments where you weren't allowed to be emotional, you weren't allowed to struggle. If you weren't all in obsessive, Um, If you weren't aggressive, then it was deemed you weren't committed or you didn't want it enough. So that's how I would behave. And it wasn't actually who I was as a person. And no one ever took the time to find out who I was. It was almost that just because Jack's successful, he'll just carry on being successful. But actually, I was being successful from a very negative place, as I said, from insecurity and through, through a fear of failure, rather than from a place of a healthier place as to why do I want to achieve and what do I want to achieve and why is it important to me so for me as a coach I'd be trying to understand where I came from as a as a person who my environment is I'm very big on that as a coach of like tell me about home how are things let me learn about you as a human being because you are a human being, twenty-four hours a day. You're an athlete for a few hours. I remember I had a coach once, and this is quite a crude way of of this saying. It's quite a crude way of looking at at coaching as such, but it kind of, it does make sense. And there'd be better ways to to explain it. But I had a coach say to me, "I have two hours a day to make you better, and you have twenty-two hours to mess up," mm. which I thought was really powerful because it was right. Because my job wasn't just the two hours. It was the whole lifestyle. And no one ever really understood that with me or, or tried to support me on those 22 hours. It was all jacks a beast for the two hours. And then I was left on my own to to struggle with my demons and my mindset and my behaviors rather than learning about me as a human. So that's my my first step in any coaching is let me find out who you are and then I'll figure out how we work together.
0: I'm thinking of Andre Agassiz's book, Open, right at the end of each chapter, He basically says, I hate tennis Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking about tennis. And I've said this previously, there are similarities to me between tennis. Let's just say singles, tennis, singles, tennis, swimming, wrestling, um, track, uh, rowing has some of this as well. Uh, there are these sports, American football has some of this. They are very physically demanding. And I know you go through some injuries in your career, like the, the toll it takes on the body to run, uh, to play a sport like tennis, to play a sp- sport like American football or rowing. They're just physically demanding sports. But there's also this mental and emotional island or um, spotlight that's on you that it's between you and 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 the stopwatch and, and maybe the people next to you if you choose to focus on them and, and compare yourself to them. But I call these sports pain sports because you have to physically train to be fit to be in shape and it takes a toll on your body. And then you expect because you put in all this work to then get this time. And whether it's fortune or luck, I actually loved your framework around fortune and luck. And I haven't really heard it that way. And that, that was pretty clean and clear for me. So thank you for that gift. But, but when you're in it and you're in the pain sport, I'm thinking of Agassiz. I'm thinking about you. Did you love running? Did you, if you look back, like, was the relationship a relationship of love? Or was it was it a different type of marriage?
1: Well, I've, I've never really run since retiring. Um, I can run and I might go out. Uh, for example, the last couple of months, I've begrudgingly gone out on runs, but I, I absolutely detest. It. I find it boring. Um, and then the problem with being a sprinter is unless I warm up for an hour. <laughs> i'm i can't sprint i don't have that time anymore with a newborn and and jobs and coaching and various other things um so yeah i i don't think i ever really i didn't dislike running i wouldn't say i hated it but the reason i did it was because i was good at good at it good at it sorry so i wanted to be a hundred meter runner Like every kid, I ran down a grass track when I was seven years old and obviously it's the 60 metres when you're seven and beat everyone by a mile and I thought, brilliant, I'm going to be a 100 metre runner because there's also where all the glamour and the glory is. But I'm not a 100 metre runner. I'm fast, but I'm not 100 metre fast. I have a lot of strength and endurance. So then I moved into the 800 and high jump. High jump because I was tall. 800 because I could do that and cross country and I was good. But then I was better at the 400, so I moved to that. Then someone said, do the 400 hurdles. So I did that. It was never about, well, what do I really enjoy doing? What do I want to do? It was, what can I be the best at? What can I win at? And it didn't matter what it was. It could have been another sport. So I was playing high-level soccer, football, uh, and rugby union when I was a kid. But my mum sat me down and said, look, the only reason you're good at them is because you are physically superior to everyone else. Mm. The only reason you you are good at these is because you can run and you can keep running. So why don't you just do that? So that was a decision I made very early, 14. I I said, okay, I'll get rid of the others and I'll just focus on this. Yeah, my favorite sport and the sport I'm most engaged with and I watch and I am it's pretty much my hobby is rugby union. Still is.
0: All right. So we're gonna stay here because this is fascinating to me. I have been fortunate, there's the word, to interview players for the NBA, for professional basketball, uh, when they're going to the draft. So they have something called a combine. I go to the combine, interview the players. I've probably interviewed 25 guys. And I would ask them, why do you play basketball? And I've done this for Major League Soccer, which isn't the English Premier League, but same sort of thing. A lot of them coming from college, uh, they're going to play professional soccer. You know, why do you want to play professional soccer? I've done it for the NHL, professional hockey as well. And I would say the most common answer is, well, I've always been good at it. And so there is something in sports where we get validated from a young age when we're good at something and we like the feeling of getting the trophy. Who doesn't? We like the feeling of being in the newspaper. Who doesn't? We like the feeling of mom or dad or whoever it is saying, I'm proud of you. Uh, Who doesn't? And by the way, I think if we zoom away from sports, this exists in academics, this exists in in, in art, in theater, like this sort of external validation, as you called it earlier, uh, it is everywhere. And, and so now you're coaching and you've decided to be connected to the sport. Why do you do that? How is that answer different than perhaps the answer that your 20 year old self gave for, for why you, why you competitively run? What, what, what's the why behind the coaching?
1: First bit, there is an element of, I'm I'm a good coach. I, I am I believe I'm a very good coach. In fact, I think I'm, this is blowing my own I think I'm a better coach than I was an athlete. But a big part of it is I really enjoy doing it. It doesn't feel like a chore coaching. Sometimes my running did. Not when you're flying and you're doing really well, right? But track and field, you pre-season for seven months. There's a lot of just hard graft to get to that point where you're flying in the summer, where it feels easy. Whereas with coaching... What I love most and I work with other sports and help teach them how to move, how to run faster and I do performance coaching with businesses and mentoring and I love that and it's all because I like seeing people develop and grow and really hit and I don't use the word potential, it was mentioned earlier, I hate the word because I think potential is just made up by someone, there's no facts to potential. Well you've got potential and then it puts such a weight on on young people because you don't you might be more informed. I might be more informed to look at an athlete, a young athlete, and go, hmm, "They could do something," but I don't actually know. So why would I put that pressure upon them? But anyway, that's a slight detour. Um, I just really enjoy seeing people grow and develop, and also I'm really privileged that I've been through a lot within my life and then within sport, and not just being successful, but mental health and various other pieces. I really struggled. I still continue to have moments where I struggle if i can help someone through my experience and my knowledge either not struggle as i did or have the tools to manage better when they do struggle kind of winning and how cool is that and I, the other thing is i'm really passionate about trying to win the right way because i i won and i was successful i could have been more successful anyone could that's the whole thing right everyone said they could you run a pb you always think you can run faster you might not have been able to, but you always think you do. I was successful though. A world medalist, been to two Olympics, great. I've been top ten in the world pretty much my whole career. But I did it a really hard way. And I the sacrifice and the cost was myself and my health and my mental health in particular. But I know I can I could have won in a different way. And I know I can help athletes win without destroying themselves. That doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's nice at times but I know we can do it in a better, healthier way.
0: One of the things that I hear underneath what you're saying is we've got external motivation on one side, we've got internal motivation on the other. And perhaps if you study those sports psychology literature, they would say, Hey, go toward the intrinsic motivation. And yet, and they would say, you know, comparison is a thief of joy, like stay away from comparisons. And as I hear you, and as I'm thinking about my perspective, I'm very cautious to just say, oh, be so black and white in that way. And the way I like to think about it is, yes, we need to be thoughtful around extrinsic motivators. And if it's just external motivators, you might be playing with some fire there. But how do we create an and here where... You are clear on your internal motivation. You know exactly why you do what you do. And it's a 10 out of 10 on intrinsic motivation. And then your external motivation is just one step down from there. And maybe you do compare yourself to the best runners in the world and you do see what they're doing and you do say, all right, is there anything I can learn from them? And is there anything that maybe I'll steal from them? And I think where we get it wrong is when we say to just just delete that side of you that that did get you to top 10 in the world, man. Like, let's be honest. You said there were eight other runners that you were, you know, competing with when you're 15 that were faster than you and they fell off. Uh, Like you did work your ass off. You you did a lot of amazing things. And so we minimize sometimes the external by just saying, oh, focus on the internal and Anytime I've studied healthy superstars, you notice that they have both and they have a range in their identity and they they do want to be great and they are striving to be better than everybody else. But to your point earlier, not at the expense of their internal drive and the clarity of their internal drive. Uh, I'll just use an example. Like I listened to Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, who's an NBA superstar right now. And look, this is a guy who... Is gifted, fortunate. I mean, he had a growth spurt late. He came to basketball late. And when he entered professional basketball in the US, he was 6'11 raw but he has gifts that other people don't have, and yet he's transformed his body. He's become a better shooter. He's worked on his craft and his game, and you listen to him talk, and I think he really has this nice combination of internal drive and external drive, and I'm a big basketball guy, so I hear it in Stephen Curry. Like Stephen Curry wants to be better than everybody else, and I think he has clarity on what he wants to achieve from a winning standpoint, and doing it the right way, and being a great teammate, and being a leader, um, and being a family man, and he plays golf, and he does other things, right? And Nikola Jokic is the same thing. So, like, I love studying these people because sometimes they don't have it. And to your point, they burn out, and you may see that at thirty in the NBA, um, where now they they don't have the drive. But if you study others, you can hear no, no, no. You can have both. You can have the internal and external. But let's just make sure we're prioritizing the internal because our society and our world tends to really give you the flowers they're literally giving you the flowers that's an external motivator and that's addictive and i think we hear that in hollywood and musicians it's, they get addicted to the external and it's a slippery slope so i just went on a rant but i saw you nodding your head so feel free to on ramp at any point uh, during, this, during it
1: th- this is my this is my stuff right this is my my passion and, and where i get most excited First, I've got three things I actually wrote down because I was like, I, I want to talk about these. Like, I want to make sure I don't forget about them. First one is, um, I come from workplace wellbeing now. That's where I work in, And I think well-being is quite soft and quite fluffy um, because it's not linked to performance. Instead of understanding that wellbeing, health, mindset's foundation to becoming a performer or a high performer, elite performer, whatever you want to do. But sport is not healthy. Can I say that first? Like, sport's not healthy. So let's stop trying to make it healthy. Let's just make it healthier. That's something I'm really big on. Because you can't avoid the difficult days. Can we stay there?
0: Is it sports not healthy or professionalized sport is not healthy?
1: Professional. Exactly. Elite. This is a difference. I think Mara Otoji, uh, England rugby player, he was on a podcast and, and they asked him what's what's your definition of high performance? And I thought this was this was incredible what he said. He said, Well, high performance, anyone can get to high performance, but elite performance is different. I'm talking about elite is like that real 0.1% where actually it is unhealthy. And that's where we live in professional sports. It's not exercise. I'm not doing it to keep fit. I'm doing this to win something. And I'm trying to, if I'm trying to achieve something that's never been done before, guess what? I've got to go to some places that no one's ever been before. And they don't tend to be the nice places, and that's why no one's ever been there. So that's why I'm like, let's not make it healthy, because that avoids conflict that avoids difficult times but we can make it healthier so that we can manage ourselves better within those moments of difficulty and that's what we don't currently do very well we just say yeah go go to war go to the well and see if you survive instead of i'm going to take you to that well and i'm going to help you survive it and that's the difference right and that's where a coach comes in rather than a manager or whatever you want to define it as so that's the first bit i wanted to talk about because i think that's really important and isn't talked about enough next bit as you said about intrinsic extrinsic they can't be connected i work with um i work in commercial so a lot of people who they work because they want money now if you read the all the books and everything you say no that's a really bad motivation but it's not if you connect it to your intrinsic i want a lot of money to provide for my family to have more opportunities to do that okay now we're starting to get the reason of well, in- extrinsic or external is not always a negative if you connect it to a Y. So for me, I come from no money. I don't need loads of money, but I would like to be successful financially so that my daughter can have a better upbringing financially than I did, so there wouldn't be as many stressors. doesn't mean I need to go and become Bezos or something, because I'm not willing to pay that price, of where I would then neglect her potentially because I'd have to put so much into that. So that's where I think we'll connect it to the why and it might not be unhealthy. And then the other one is comparison and you said it perfectly. Loads of people say, no, oh, you shouldn't compare. Well, why not? It's very natural. It's a very, it's a pretty much one of the things we're programmed to do for survival. I judge people I assess my environments to find out whether it's safe, what, how I need to react. And this is where I talk about, well, be aware, don't compare, which almost sounds like a horrible commercial. But being aware of my competition is incredibly important. Comparing myself might not be the most healthy thing. But being aware of it is actually a part of my job if I want to be successful. As you said, what can I take from that person? What can I learn? What are they doing that might give me an advantage at this point because I can I can overcome that weakness they have with my strength? Whatever it is, it's competition. So be aware, but if you get stuck into that comparison piece and the standard way of society is looking on Instagram, seeing everyone's life and saying, hold on, which we've all been in at some point and every now and then have, but it's good to be aware of what your competition is doing.
0: That was awesome. So I, the one thread I want to pull on is when you mentioned Bezos and I'm thinking, all right, we have Bezos and we have Serena Williams, right? And, and they're both working their way up to being the greatest in the world at what they're doing. But there's a difference, which is Serena is, let's just use tennis as an example. She's just working her way up to perform and compete and to win But there's not like an ownership. There's not something she's building from a tennis standpoint that then will sustain and live on so that she can step away and then just have it work for her. Whereas Bezos is building Amazon ideally to then have it work for him in a passive way. Right. And so there's this idea of ownership that is different than being a performer. And we see this. Why do you think Serena then is getting into business? Why do we see um, Jason Momoa, Aquaman getting into vodka or water or creating, you know, business entities or Taylor Swift, you know, doing things besides just going on tour is because there's a lack of freedom that comes with being a elite performer, elite performers don't have autonomy. They have to show up to perform in a concert. They have to show up uh, in front of 30,000 people. Uh, Like they don't get to decide and they're not building something that then gets to create for them beyond itself. And, And so you had a post on LinkedIn today where you talked about ownership and sort of, do you have it or does it have you? And you mentioned awareness before. And I think it's an interesting framework because it's like let's use money as an example. If I have money, I just want to make sure money doesn't have me. And mm. if money has me, then then even if I'm Bezos and I don't know anything about I, I, I I'm not speaking on I don't know him anything like that. But if money has him, then yeah, maybe he isn't present for his kids and maybe he isn't present for his wife and and all these different factors that lead to unhealthy decisions that a performer, can often have to make. But in business, one of the beauties of business is there is some more potential for autonomy if you decide to take on an ownership role. It, once again, doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. Doesn't mean there's not going to be a grind. Doesn't mean there's not going to be sacrifice. All those things are true, but you're building something to then be sustainable. Whereas athletes are building something and they're every year going back to the well to try to fight against Father Time and and just try to get as much as they can while they still can, because eventually it's gonna be done. And then there's this cliff that they fall off when it's over. And so maybe that's a good segue for you. I know at 28, you decide to retire from running and you just told us earlier, you haven't run since. Um, and I think there was one race that you did, you did jump in um, to support a teammate and to help them, which was probably a different experience. Mm-hmm. But talk about the, the the cliff and what is it like for Jack when he's not a runner and the identity? And, and you can also talk about anything I talked about with ownership and you having it and it having you. But I think about that in terms of transition as well and, and our identity when we're not the runner and we're not the Olympian. Or, or someone might say, Jack used to be a runner and he used to be an Olympian. Oh, you're, you're still those things. It's part of your journey. But like, how, does, how do you think about transition and identity?
1: But if I get called a former Olympian, I think any Olympian is this, you get called a former Olympian, it's quite painful. Um, It's like, hold on, I I worked incredibly hard. It's not former. Um, But at the same time, you really want to detach from all of that. Because I'll give you an example. When I, I took 18 months out from track and field after the 2012 Olympics, before I moved out to Florida and started my career again. And during that time, I was just Jack Green, the hurdler, Jack Green, the Olympian, Jack Green, the athlete. And I wasn't running. I wasn't training, I wasn't competing, but that's who I was. And I couldn't detach from that. And actually now I'm in a place, I use what I've done because it gives me a platform. It it gives me an advantage in, in some areas. I can open doors that people can't, whatever. But actually, it, I'm actually quite far removed now from that, that. And not that it's not a part of me, but I'm like, I'm so much more. And it can be quite frustrating when it's like, uh, I was just a runner especially when I don't even run anymore. It's like, I can't even remember that guy. Um, Identity is huge. I was fortunate when I retired that, and this is strange because there's no money in track and field, absolutely none. I was pretty much on minimum wage um, and, and I was working three part time jobs. I was coaching. I was public speaking just to fund my career. I was training on my own and so on. But because of my mental health struggles and then because I had to have so many other things going just to be an athlete. When I retired, the only thing I dropped was running. So I had other parts to my identity. I just dropped the running at that point. I really wanted to drop it. So it was quite nice. It was a relief. I've been doing it for so long and destroying myself for so long. Whereas a lot of people were at that point where that's all they have. And particularly in this old school mentality of sports, which is if you think about anything else, if you build, invest in this, build a business outside of it, and you're not 100% dedicated to your craft instead of seeing that it, it, it adds. But I came from that environment where it was like, if you even think about anything other than running, you are almost cheating on it and you don't want to be the best. I remember like being told by, former coaches if you started seeing uh, seeing someone seeing a partner mm, I don't think you should be doing that cuz it'll take away from your sport because now you're not completely focused on it which if it's not the right relationship might be right but if it's the right relationship do you know what it's probably going to help me um so yeah there's lots of bits on identity that I think need a lot of learning and I don't think it's as simple as let's get a dual career and I think that's hugely powerful and really important but I think there's just more learning and development around human beings and life that need to be done for athletes rather than just, you need to now have another career that you pretty much put the same mindset and so on into. Uh, I think that, yeah, I think there's a lot more to this idea of identity and where we go.
0: You're, You're hearkening back to that 22 hour compared to two hour idea where, yeah, if I think of the 22 hours as opportunities to screw up, hell yeah. Like you can drink, you can smoke, you can eat unhealthy, you can be in a bad relationship, you can have toxic friends, you know, you could have grifters. I mean, there's all this stuff that can happen in the 22 hours. You also can say, well, those 22 hours are actually 22 hours where I can actually invest more into myself. That's going to allow me to be a better runner. So as a coach, how do you think of the two hours and 22 hours? And and by the way, what I love about how you speak is you, there's like an empathy to it. It's like, Hey, I understand they're not wrong. Yeah. I can screw this all up in the next 22 hours. That is a truth, right? I can, I understand why they're saying you don't want to necessarily have a partner because there is potential for it to be distracting. That is also true. Like if, If you're going through a divorce, it's probably not going to help you necessarily, you know, shave off a second, you know, in in a race, but there's a pessimism to that. There's also, it's interesting. We would talk about the word potential. My son yesterday, he's really into sports and really into football. And we were talking about the NFL draft and there's a quarterback and he goes, yeah, he has a lot of hope. And I said, What do you you mean he has a lot of hope? He's like, you know, like he could be a lot better. And I could tell he was trying to remember what the word was. And the word he was trying to get to was actually potential. And it's interesting because when we draft in sports, we always talk about potential and what someone could become. And it's such an interesting word because I've gone back and forth on it. I hear you on like that word being negative because we might place it on someone and they have to carry the burden of potential. But then there's this other way to think about it in terms of possibility. It's like, oh, there is a world of possibility that you can do with the 22 hours. And what you do in those 22 hours might have an impact on how we show up for those two hours. And, you know, there's a lot of potential in what you want to do and how you want to interact with it. And so it's an interesting word that I hear you on like how it can be burdensome on someone. I also think it can be liberating for someone to say like, oh, there's a world of potential that I didn't know existed. So it's an interesting word. And, and we can go into the 22 hours. Now you think about that, or how you think about that word in terms of uh, maybe for someone to own their potential. All right. Like what can I do? And maybe process versus outcome and how we think about those types of things.
1: So quickly go into that potential piece, because it is quite, I've had it. I've talked about this a lot. It is quite, divisive on it but that's divisive with people who care not the people that don't so potential is not a problem if the person saying you have potential is going to sign up to supporting you and bring in some safety but the problem is most people who say you have potential never take any responsibility or ownership we talked about ownership to support you on that journey so you just go, you've got potential, see you later. So you literally just put a load of pressure on someone and, and off you go. Whereas me as a coach, I can say, technically I could say, I believe you have a lot of potential and I'm going to help you get there. Now I've created an environment where that's not pressure. That's actually empowering because I've said, I think you can do so. So I believe in you and don't worry, you're not on your own because I'm going to get you there or at least and support you, you and, in that.
0: And you could even ask, hey, where do you want to go? Yeah. Like, hey, hey, like there can be a question there, which is like, where do you see yourself? And we've all had people that saw more in ourselves than we probably saw in ourselves. And when they are able to articulate, hey, I actually think we can get there. Right? Like, I think I think you've got more than you think you do, man. Uh, like, I remember a, a my freshman year of college, I had a writing teacher writing 105, like basic writing. He's like, oh, man, you can write. Nobody ever told me that other than my parents. And like, they just like like to say nice things about me a lot, which is really nice. But I was like, whoa, man, like I felt seen by him. And, you know, 20 years later, I wrote a book or whatever it was. And and perhaps that spark, he ignited in me um, some ideas around my potential. So I love that you're connecting it to, hey, but are they with you? Because a lot of other people put it on you. And then when you don't get there, they're the first ones to say, you were lazy or you were this or you were that or uh, you choked or you're a loser and all these other words that can get associated with that.
1: If I hadn't had, uh, there's a handful of people, especially when I was younger on my journey, who I still communicate with them now, teachers, uh, early coaches, who never said I had potential, but they said they believed in me and then they helped me with that. And if it wasn't for them, I, I'm i very driven, I'm very obsessed, I'm very intent, intense. I was always going to do something, I believe, but they really helped me on that journey. Um, but let's go on, the 22 hours piece, talked about pessimism. That's when people don't understand you're a human being, and that mistakes are inevitable. If I said to you as a sports person, in your whole career, will you ever have an injury? you'd say, of course, Jack, I'm going to get injured. So then why is it a problem when you do get injured? Or why is it a surprise? Or why is it a shock? We knew it was going to happen. So if I said to you, in those 22 hours that you have every day for the next, what's the average, 84 years of your life, will you make a mistake? Will you get things wrong? Will you have bad days? You'd go, obviously. Okay, cool. So I'm going to expect that bad things might happen, but... I'm going to help you in getting through that. And that, that this keep going back to this support piece. I'm not saying that every relationship you're going to have in those 22 hours or embark on is going to be positive. But I am saying I'm going to help you learn and develop either how to manage those or how to overcome them or how to choose the right ones. I'm not just going to put you into the wilderness and then say, good luck. And then when you come back and say something went wrong, go, oh, well, I knew something was going to go wrong. You're a failure. But I I didn't help you in that. And this is, what: are you a coach or are you not a coach? My responsibility is the whole person. And quite frankly, it's the human being first. My responsibility, if an athlete leaves me and isn't a better person, what am I doing with my time? And also, I can make them a better athlete. But if they are not in the right place as a person, they won't perform anyway. Or if they do it's short term, you talked about that early burnout. I was really unhealthy in my, my mental health. Yet I still performed. So it's not that you can't perform with unhealthy mindsets and mental health and behaviour, but I couldn't keep performing because I completely emptied myself and I broke. So instead of having what should have been, I was professional for 10 10 years, a bit less because I had some time out, but I retired really early and I was successful. But I should have had, and should is obviously a dangerous word, but I can look back and say that. I know myself, I know coaching. I should have been had more sustainable performance and should have done it a better way. But I didn't. I just destroyed myself and expected that I could destroy myself for the rest of my life. It's not possible. We want sustainable excellence. The best athletes in the world, the most impressive ones, those healthy ones that you spoke about, healthy, whatever definition we're going to put on that, are the ones that keep winning. Like, until you go into elite performance and professional sport, to understand what it takes to keep winning is absolutely incredible. The people have been at the top and won however many Grand Slams, however many... Oh, it's it's something different. That's that's what you should aspire to. That's what you should be impressed by, not the person who did it once, the person who keep, can keep doing it.
0: Well, and even more so, there are people that have done that who have wrecked their marriages, wrecked their relationships with their kids. And once again, that's their choice. That's their decision. If that's what is most important to them, like, who am I to say that that's their journey. Right. And, and whatever works for each of us, but you use the word success a lot there. It's just about, Hey, how are we defining success? Mm -hmm. And I know for me personally, like if I wreck my marriage, if I wreck my relationship with my kids, that's not the juice is not worth the squeeze for me. Um, someone else might look back and say, you know what? Like we got married when we were 18. Um, like we were in love then, but we grew out of love and we needed to get a divorce. And so there's more to it. And, and our society tends to say divorce is bad. Marriage is good. I don't even believe that's necessarily true because sometimes people grow apart and they need to split and that's, that's okay. But I'm going to bring up divorce because it's interesting when I was thinking of the 22 hours and the coaches that would say, you shouldn't have a partner. It's like, yes, it it's true. of marriages end in divorce. So like you're signing up for something that has a high potential or propensity for failure. And yet all our societies continue to do it and and we dive in. And and so why is that It's to your point? Like, well, bad things are going to happen. It's life. Like we're going to die. Like there are bad things that are going to happen. And the question is, is it worth it? And I think that's the question we all need to be asking, no matter what we're doing. If we're an investment banker, it's like, okay, if you're going to put money to support your daughter and make sure that you're doing that, where's the line for you? And like, when is there an exit for you? And if you're only doing this for that reason, let's make really clear boundaries around how long you're going to do this for. And I think that's the key here is for each of us to think about what does success look like? Where is it not worth it? Where is, is there another possibility that might exist that doesn't have to be as painful? Um, Does that exist for me? And and so for me, I got married not because I don't want to be divorced, but because I want to have a partner. And Mm -hmm. that partner makes me better. And that doesn't mean we don't have fights and arguments and disagreements. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. Life's complicated but it's worth it. And so like, those are the things that I think are so critical and sport and your journey going back to what you said earlier, hell yeah. Use it as an opener because people understand it. They speak the language. When you tell your story, I can understand that better than I can an engineer who's working at Google um, because I've run before and I've played sport before. I haven't written code before. And so there is a platform and, and, a, an opportunity when you're in the world of sport to connect it to life uh, in a beautiful way and in life there's darkness and in sports there's darkness. So I love that you own that component and it, it's part of your your journey as well. All right, any any thoughts on what I just talked about and anything bubble up for you?
1: I think a big piece is, is just knowing what you're signing up for. And as you said, with success, there isn't a right or wrong, it's whatever you're going to choose, but you need to know what the price is and decide whether you're willing to pay it. I retired at 28 because I wasn't willing to pay what was required because juice and the squeeze piece, juice I was getting back was not worth the squeeze at all. And it was the bravest decision I've ever made because I'd just come fourth at the Commonwealth, so still top 10 in the world. 28, you peak in track and field between 28 and 32. One year out from my third Olympics, no reason why you can't go and do all these things. And obviously the reason it's the bravest decision I ever made is because it went against what people expect. And that that was a tough thing to do. And there's still a lot of people that don't understand why I retired, but it was all because I wasn't willing to sacrifice myself anymore for something that no longer had the value or the weight. And I think that's something that we don't do with goal setting, that we don't do when we start a business, when we do anything, is actually figure out like, What's this going to cost? I'd love to start something in the future, right? My own business, but I know it's going to be hard. That might be in my time, financially, mentally. And I've said to my partner, if I'm going to do something in the future, we you need to know what it will cost you as well as me because I'm going to have to go and do more. Our priorities have to change. Same way that when I was an athlete, that was number one. but I was willing to pay that price and I was willing to lose things. And I think that's where people go wrong, especially on business piece. Everyone thinks, no one really goes, well, what do I actually want from this business to be success and to find success? Because actually success might be, I want to have autonomy over my own time and have enough that just covers all my bills. It doesn't mean I have to have a big exit where I make hundreds of millions because you might not be willing to pay what that's worth. We said about the basic, I'm not prepared to do what would be required to start on Amazon. It just doesn't align with me and that's okay, but it does for other people. So I think that define the success and figure out the cost and then figure out why you want it. And the reason why people tend to not follow through with things is because that price comes up, the cashier goes, right, this is how much it's going to cost. And they go, oh no, I wasn't, I I don't have enough for that or I don't want to spend that. So I'm out, but you should know about that before you start.
0: And it's interesting, we talk about success and you mentioned top four. I've always been so curious about this for Olympians, where we give gold, silver, bronze. Well, what about fourth? And, and you've experienced that. and four so, times. <laughs> and so I want to get this perspective because I also, as I mentioned, I've done a lot of work in basketball. And in basketball, and college basketball, if you make it to the final four, it's a successful year. Like it, I've had coaches on here who have made it to the final four and they usually don't say, Oh, you know, we were two wins away from winning the whole thing. They're usually like, heck yeah, we made it the final four. And even like, if they're up for the hall of fame, they'll list how many final fours they had. But in the Olympics, they don't say, Oh, Jack has, or in any, any of sort of running, um, competitions, worlds, that sort of stuff. Like, oh, you finished fourth. Great job. Uh, so it's interesting as we as we think about what success is and what it's not in the perspective with which we take with that. But what was it like for you to finish fourth? Um, and you had other times where you finished above fourth, but I'm curious about four because it seems like a unique space to be in for, for a runner.
1: And I've not really thought about this, but I actually started my career and ended my career with a fourth place. So as much as I went, I went pro 18-19 and went to my first world champs at 19. But at 20 years old at the Olympics in London, I came fourth in the relay and we missed a medal by 0.13 of a second. Then in my last competition at the Commonwealth, I came fourth in the 400 hurdles and missed a medal by hundredths of a second and missed a silver medal by hundredths of a second. Try and do that on the stopwatch and you realise how... <laughs> How close that is. Uh you do get something. They give you a nice paper certificate. It's not quite the same, but you get something. But as you said, I remember 20 years old finishing, and obviously in London, in Britain, it was such a big thing. So I remember you get a month off. So I'd go out and have a few drinks and enjoy myself for a month every year. And after those Olympics, I was I was I was finding it difficult anyway, dealing with all of that and dealing with the Olympics at, at that age and what was perceived as failure. But I remember it kept on being rubbed in when you'd meet someone and they'd be like, "Oh, what do you do?" And I said, "Oh, I'm an athlete." And they're like, "Oh, did you go to Olympics?" That's always the first one in track and field, right? Did you go to Olympics? So you can. I've got a friend who's been to multiple World Championships, Europeans, Commonwealths, but has never been to Olympics. And yet, the only thing anyone asks him is, "Did you go to Olympics?" And he has to say no. Yet he was an incredibly good athlete. Uh, it just didn't work out on those times for injury. And then I used to get, "Did you go to the Olympics?" Yes, I did actually. Did you medal? No. I came forth, and I remember, and I tell this story when people ask, and it's so funny that I remember I was speaking to this this person. She, she said, oh, did you go to the Olympics? Yes. Did you medal? No. Patted me on the shoulder and said, "Ah, oh, that's a shame. <laughs> and I thought, it's not – and I was like, it's not sports day. Like, I just came forth at an Olympic Games at 20 years old, but it was seen as a, as a failure. And then she said, how bizarre that actually, and even just going to an Olympics, or uh, define success for anyone, but as simple as Olympics, to go into the 400-meter hurdles in the Olympics, other than a few countries that get their wild cards, whatever it might be, you are the top 32 in the world at that time at what you do. That is incredible. Put that perspective into anything else, and you'd be like, wow, you are incredible. If I said I was fourth in the world, i do a head of commercial role at the moment. I'm the fourth best head of commercial in the world. People would be like, oh my God, that's incredible. They wouldn't ask me, well, why aren't you third? Yet in sport, because we have such a clear measurement. But I'm actually really proud of, of my fourth places because I knew what it took to get there. And I also had a really big learning curve and development of understanding that control the controllables piece and the fact that, I can't do anything about anyone else. So when I finished fourth at the Commonwealth Games and I missed it, missed it by the narrowest of margins, to the point normally you dip across the line and you know, you know if you've got a medal or not where you finished. Like I've ne- this is the only time I actually got it wrong, and I was like I've got a medal there, and then it came up on the, you're standing there comes up on the board. Now nah, I missed it by two hundredths, so and I celebrated. Yeah, I came fourth, and the reason I celebrated is because. Three people ran faster than me, but I did everything I could on that day. I genuinely, it's the best performance I've ever had in my career, and it just happened that three people beat me, but I couldn't do anything more. They were just better than me on that day. didn't mean I was happy about them being better than me. I went and worked, right? But I accepted the fact that I did everything in my power. And that's why 4th is something I'm actually really proud of.
0: I think we often mix up complacency and contentment. Uh, I think when we're content and we know we're doing everything we can, it actually drives us. And it drives us to continue because it feels good to feel fulfilled and to have that feeling of, hey, I did whatever I could and, and I just lost. All right, let's keep working at it. Let's keep learning and growing and getting better because it feels good to get fulfillment and contentment. Whereas complacency, it's like, you know, it is what it is. You know, I I just can't get there. Uh, I guess I'm just not good enough. Like complacency sounds very, very different than contentment. So when I hear you talk about that, I hear contentment. I also hear like, you know, three hundredths of a second, six hundredths of a second. I hear these like margins. And you recently wrote about marginal gains and especially being British, uh, marginal gains were really made famous by David Brailsford and his concept around getting 1% better. And the article I read, you sort of pushed against it uh, a little bit. So can you talk about why not focusing on marginal gains might be a way to go for an athlete?
1: So it depends who you are and where you are. So the difference between me being sixth in the world and being world champion that year If you look at it on time-wise, like less than a percent of performance increase, if you want to make it as simple as that. So you can say, yeah, marginal gains. But I was also doing a lot, pretty much everything, that that's all I had left to focus on. Whereas most people, it's just human nature, we like shiny, we like new, we like easier, that we then go, oh, let's go for this really marginal gain that will get me 0.1% but I'll forget about the two seconds I've left by not doing the foundational things. And that's where I really push back. And it's like, it's that whole standard thing. We want to get the basics right, get your foundations in place. It's as simple as for me. Be efficient. If I can spend the same amount of time on something basic that helps me improve more, I'm going to do that. Because why would I spend more time on something that doesn't help me improve as much? Does it make the boat go faster? One of those, right? And if the answer is that makes it faster than this, then I'm going to go do that. And most of the time, it's not the marginal gains because you haven't got the foundations in place or the fundamentals. You still eat horribly. You still don't sleep properly. You don't whatever. And that's where I get frustrated on it is let's go for the big things. Once you've got them, let's see what we've got left. But yeah, so especially in terms of like normal society as such outside of elite sport where people get really excited about marginal gains, but these are the people that aren't doing the foundations the most. So when we
0: talk about foundations, you've been open about your challenges with depression, bipolar tendencies, anxiety, and I have a quote from you that I think summarizes this up really nicely, and then I'd like to hear what's foundational for you to make sure you're at your best. So the quote is there are some days where I feel some things and I don't like them, but I can deal with them on the plus side. I feel joy and happiness, which I haven't felt in years and years because I tried to block out everything. So what are you doing to make sure you're foundationally healthy, uh, from a day-to-day day-to-day basis or a moment to moment basis?
1: Yeah, that's a, I don't even know when that, that you've, you've dug deep there for that one um i can remember saying it but it was a long time ago and that was all around vulnerability and being emotional and coming from an environment and and an upbringing and and not a wrong upbringing just the environment i was in the upbringing that i had where it was that british masculine can't feel things not allowed to be vulnerable vulnerability is a weakness which in sport we see all the time and i remember um and this is this wasn't meant to have have the kind of result that it did but i'm i'm as I said, I'm all I'm all or nothing. I'm quite all consuming. And I remember a coach said to me when I was young, when you're struggling at the end of a rep or when you're feeling really tired or fatigued, you walk off really tall, head held high. And if you need to go down on the floor or breathe heavy or throw up or struggle, you go and do that when no one can see you. Because then people think you've always got more, they think you're strong, and so on. And I was notoriously known for this, even in the in like Team GB when we'd be in training camps. I remember people just being like, how do you do this? How are you not on the floor? How are you not struggling? But I was. I was really struggling. But I'd been taught from a young age that I wasn't allowed to show people any vulnerability because they'd use it against me or it was weakness. And that stopped me from feeling anything or not being able to handle emotions when they came. Because I told myself I wasn't meant to struggle. that I wasn't meant to feel upset, depressed. That when those emotions came up, I couldn't handle them. Because so I said they didn't exist. And now they were here. Now I've got to deal with them and I don't have the tools to deal with it. And that's where I'd really, really struggle and then end up in these really bad places. But in terms of looking after myself, there's really standard things. Well-being is very basic and not very exciting. Am I keeping active? So physically active, which I don't do enough at the moment. Since having my, my daughter, I have completely neglected myself and actually had to have some very honest conversations with myself of you can't keep giving if you have nothing in the tank. So I've had to start being selfish in a way of I need to prioritise myself at moment so that I can then be the best person and, and be the best dad or partner, whatever that might be. But it's that. I then have to have social connection. It's really important to me that I'm social, that I have friends, that I go and do things, that I go and interact with people. I like to have a purpose and a drive. I like to have something to look forward to. You know, standard things you can put in there around nutrition, around whatever it might be. But the simple way is, what are the things that give you energy And what are the things that sap away from you and take from you? Do more of one and less of the other or learn to manage the negative ones and then, yeah, encourage yourself to do more. And it's different for everyone. I got myself a dog when I moved back from Florida to the UK because I was lonely and I only thought about myself and it made my world feel a lot smaller that I needed something outside of me to look after and to have as a companion. That was part of my health and well-being and that was part of me being able to be a top performer was that i was able to step away from sport and focus on something else as simple as a dog um so yeah there's a few things in there but prioritizing yourself and well-being is incredibly basic and simple and that's also why people don't do it because it's not very exciting a lot of the time
0: that's a great place for us to wind down jack I have no idea how I found you on LinkedIn. I really don't. It's probably that you posted something and then someone shared it. And then, I don't know, maybe you connected with me. I connected with you. I have no idea. I I could probably go back in the archives and try to figure it out. But I'm grateful that we did. And in a world where I think we all are becoming more aware, I like that word that you focused on earlier, about the downsides of social media, and we should be aware of them and, and the impact they have on our health. I'm also very uh, appreciative and I feel very fortunate to be on LinkedIn where we're connected and and having a meaningful conversation uh, in in January. And so uh, I'm grateful that our paths crossed. And and for a minute, I'm grateful that I'm on LinkedIn and I'm appreciative (laughs) for being on LinkedIn. Um, I know you post there quite a bit. Um, if people want to follow you on LinkedIn or if they want to bring you in as a keynote speaker or get connected with you all uh, around well-being, where are the best places for them to find you and, and also to follow along your journey?
1: Yeah, you'll only find me on LinkedIn. So part of that social media and the impact I can have. I, I made a decision when I retired that I was only going to be on LinkedIn and, and get rid of the rest. And one, for my health and and so on but to give me more time back and, and focusing on myself in that so yeah find me on linkedin jack green oly on the end because can't said can't escape the uh the olympian bit um but yeah you'll find me on there obviously i i try and share as much as possible um and i do it from a place of i'm trying to give something practical trying to help people because I think you see a lot of speakers out there or a lot of things that's pretty much just like look at me look how wonderful I am give me a round of applause and I don't think that's why people should share I think people should share because they want to help other people and say I went through this and this is what works for me might not work for you but this is what has helped me and this is what I've experienced I hope you can take that to you know help yourself or help the people you love and I think that practical piece is so important. So that's what you'll see from me on there. And yeah, find me on LinkedIn.
0: Awesome. I'm on LinkedIn as well at Brian Levinson. There is no O-L-Y at the end of my <laughs> name because I did not earn that. And I wasn't slow, but I definitely was not fast as a kid. I could have used maybe maybe some Jack Green speed and, and maybe I would have had a little bit better athletic career, but it's all worked out just fine. Uh, I think for both of us. So um, Jack, great to meet you in person or over zoom or i guess this isn't in person at all it feels like we're in person though it does it feels it feels more in person than following your stuff on linkedin i feel like even though i i read your stuff or i watch interviews with you there's still nothing like an interaction and so uh thanks for making the time to interact with me and and our listeners Yeah. If anyone wants to listen to more of these conversations, they're at strongskills.co slash podcast. Maybe another time, Jack, we'll talk about the idea of strong skills, strong skills versus soft skills. Uh, You Mm. sort of hinted at the idea of soft skills. Uh, So our company was founded on this idea that these skills that we were talking about today are are not soft, that they're actually what makes us strong. So uh, I'll leave you with that little nugget and, and thanks for sharing all your wisdom and a little bit of your journey and, and I'm excited to see what continues to happen both personally and professionally in your life as well.
1: No, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. Potential is not a problem if the person saying you have potential is going to sign up to supporting you and bring some safety. But the problem is most people who say you have potential never take any responsibility or ownership, we talked about ownership, to support you on that journey. So you just go, you've got potential, see you later. So you literally just put a load of pressure on someone and and off you go. Whereas me as a coach, I can say, technically I could say, I believe you have a lot of potential and I'm gonna help you get there. Now I've created an environment where that's not pressure.